This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Welcome back to another episode of Pizza and Parsecs. I'm Dave. I'm Liv. And this is a podcast where we let our nerd flag fly as we geek out about all things we love. DC, Marvel, movies and TV, Wizarding Worlds, and galaxies far, far away. Today, we're going to be in that galaxy far, far away, Liv. Yeah, we are. We're going to be talking about Crystal Crisis on Utapau. Utapau. I just think that's a funny planet name. No, Utapau. You were hoping to set up that. You made it so easy. Well, I thought it was a goofy planet name. I'm sorry. Utapau. <laughs> so these were four episodes staged within season six of The Clone Wars. Story reels were created, but the animation was ultimately left incomplete due to the cancellation of the series. These episodes were eventually released on StarWars.com. A few were taken off the site, but someone was good enough to rip them to YouTube. I think it's definitely worth a watch. Despite being incomplete, it's still considered official canon. These, along with Darth Maul, Son of Dathomir, Dark Disciple, are all part of what is known as the Clone Wars Legacy, consisting of the story reels and adaptations that would have been released as episodes. With today's podcast, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. As these are unreleased episodes, and it's likely that not a lot of people have actually seen them, we're actually going to do a little bit more of a play-by-play than we usually would. If you would like to see these episodes, you can find them on YouTube. High level, this is a story that centers around Anakin and Obi-Wan unraveling a mystery on Utapau, beginning with their investigation of the death of a Jedi Master. And as they continue to pull on that thread, a Separatist plot is revealed. And for me, I feel like there are several deep emotional beats within this arc, where we explore the impact of Ahsoka's departure and the impact that that has had on Anakin and Obi-Wan. This is also a super unique opportunity for us. Like I said, these are story reels, so the animation is incomplete. But watching these story reels, really, it really gives us an opportunity to see the strength of the voice actors. It gives them a chance to flex their muscle there. Even in the absence of refined animation... I could still almost see the reactions, the nuanced contortions and micro-expressions just by the performances that Matt Latner and James Arnold Taylor put on. Their voices really do embody these characters, and I think that's something really remarkable about these story reels. Yes. (laughs) I don't know. Watching it through the first time, I had to kind of like not watch it, but kind of treat it as like a podcast by the lack of animation that was in it because I just found myself laughing quite frequently at the fact that, you know, their right leg out and walked across the plains constantly without moving like a toy. That's what they look like. Yes. Yes. Incomplete animation. (laughs) Yes. And they were stuck in sort of those like army man poses like you would play with as a kid and you would like drag them across like your makeshift war zone or whatever. Yes. Uh, yeah. 100% yeah. Like, let's go this way. Sliding across a conveyor belt. We're there. Like, it was it was funny. So I had to I had to kind of just listen and, cr- and, and treat it like a podcast. Because 
It was too funny. <laughs> I wasn't taking it serious. Especially when their necks opened up and it was a gaping hole. <laughs> For me, the parts that where I lost it the most are with the Amari, the tribal people on Utapau. Okay. Like, when they would, like, scream or talk, it was like those green screen mouths that are on, like, pictures. That's okay. what it, That's what it looked like to me. Yeah. It, it was funny to watch, for sure. Oh, yeah. Took some getting used to. Yeah, I just, yeah. I allowed myself, since, like, I had already seen all four episodes, and then when I went back and watched them a second time, I forced myself to kind of actually watch them. Because I already knew it was going to happen, I felt less bad laughing at the random intricate lightsaber battles and then no mouth moving when talking and then walking with the right foot in front the entire time. No switching, no hip movements, no hand movements, no head movements when they talk to each other. The random battle droid B written across the chest. The, the labels, everything. Was, there's a great deal of things that are labeled in oh, yeah. this, like placeholders, like they had a placeholder for the planets. Yeah, temporary well. planet yeah. design. It was funny. I thought it was really cool, though, because you get to see part of the process of this. Like, I imagine you're sitting in that room trying to see how this would look as it comes together before you invest all the time and the animation development around it to really, um, to really make it look pretty. Yeah, I think for some people... That's probably a really cool process to watch and don't come at me, listeners, but that's not like as even as an artist, like that's not a process that I've ever really been invested in and intrigued by. Like Disney has all of those opportunities where you can look back and see the sketch drawings. I don't watch those mainly because it's not that's not the cool part for me. The cool part is seeing the final product. I've never really been interested in the each step in each process. I do, however, love watching voice actors say their lines and kind of watch those bloopers and the process there. Like, I think that process is even cooler. And I'm not, I'm not digging at animation. I think animation is super, super cool. And the things that they can do is amazing. That process has just never been really interesting to me. So I found this very funny. It was very funny, but Again, for me, it was really a testament to the talent that they have from a voice acting standpoint. Like Matt Latner, James Arnold Taylor, just chef's kiss good. Oh, yeah. I think that was that was fantastic. And again, I just listened to it. So the first time. So it, it definitely had a it was that was definitely interesting. So with that, are you ready to dive into some of these episodes? Sure. First up, we have a death on Utapau. One crime has to be concealed by another. So in Death on Utapau, we start off with Obi-Wan and Anakin going to Utapau to retrieve Tuan, which is a Jedi Master who was found dead there. A casualty of war of sorts. And Tuan was known for her rogue investigations, and most times her whereabouts and activities were a complete mystery. Like, even to the Council. Honestly, this reminded me a lot of what we see with Quinlan Boss, who's kind of like this rogue Jedi who goes off the beaten path a lot, maverick type. And I think that's still very fresh in my mind after reading Dark Disciple as well, because you definitely get a lot of that sense in there. But initially, definitely have that feel same feeling. But initially, 
definitely have that same feeling in the episodes with Quinlan Voss and Clone Wars. She sounded like a female Anakin to me. Okay. Yeah. Like when they were describing her, I was like, oh, okay. So we have, you know, we have another Jedi that kind of has the same characteristics as Anakin Skywalker. You know, goes rogue, off the beaten path, does what he wants. Now we got the female version, but she died, so. I feel like Tuon would have been the female version of Anakin had he not been tied to Kenobi. Yeah. But as we know in Clone Wars, like, they are tied to the hip. They are rarely without one another. Yeah. And Obi-Wan kind of keeps him grounded in that aspect. Yeah. But I can definitely see the correlation between Tuon and Anakin. Oh, yeah. I think it would have been really, you know, obviously we have Obi-Wan and Obi-Wan is the perfect fit for Anakin Skywalker. But I wonder what it would have been like if Anakin was Tuon's Padawan. Like, I wonder how much more insane Anakin would have been doing his own thing if, like, someone like Tuon was his master. Crazy times we live in. They would have started coronavirus. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So, much like Tuon's character, the circumstances of her death were a little sketchy, bit of a mystery, and Anakin and Obi-Wan take it upon themselves to investigate, and eventually they discover that she was actually killed by a precision laser dart through her optic nerve, which basically would end up causing her to have a seizure without having any external clues as to how they actually died. Death from within. So during their investigation, they discover the area they think that Tuan was shot from, and they dig in a little bit deeper, and they come across a Toydarian, and they begin questioning him. And this is a part that I really like in this episode. Anakin becomes a bit aggressive with his questioning, and I was reminded of Anakin's Demeter in the Slaves of Zygeria arc at the beginning of Season 4, where the Zygerians basically captured an entire Togarudic colony, and they disappear off their planet of Kiros. In that, he has a very violent reaction to the Zygerians. And I feel like these two things, of course, relate back to Anakin's experience on Tatooine as a slave. Like, he and his mother were both slaves to a Tordarian named Watto. And basically, that path led down to an endpoint where... His mother was tortured and killed by sand people. I think this is where I want to bring in Ahsoka. The events of this arc follow Ahsoka's departure in season five, almost directly. Anakin has abandonment issues. We know this. No. (laughs) What? Yes. I never would have guessed. Yeah, he got got problems there. My eyes are open now. So we're still in the wake of Ahsoka's departure from the Order and, more significantly, abandoning Anakin. This leaves Anakin in a vulnerable and unstable place. He's volatile after Ahsoka's perceived abandonment, and he kind of devolves or regress into this primal resentment and eventual hate that he experienced on Tatooine, being a slave. Yes. (laughs) Nothing to add. (laughs) I mean, I think... I saw this particular scene in a different way. Like, yes, I know that this follows Ahsoka's departure. Right, it's like a right after. Like, this is the first mission that they've gone on since Ahsoka left. I think I took it more in the sense of, like, 
Anakin, yes, obviously, like, I know he has abandonment issues. I was being sarcastic earlier. Just want our listeners to know that I know Anakin Skywalker has problems with abandonment. But I think it also kind of goes back to that just minute anger, that flame of anger that he has constantly held on to throughout his life. You know, you were saying, you know, being a slave, it was kind of that trigger. He sees this creature that reminds him of Watto so, so, so closely, like down to the voice. Like he sounds almost exactly like him. And for me, it was like, oh, that sounds just like Watto. Like this has to be him. But I also took it as like, you know, yes, he's dealing with abandonment, but I did, I kind of disassociated it with Ahsoka and more towards he's just always angry and he uses his power to get what he wants. Like, if he wants answers, he's going to threaten you. Because he's done this multiple times throughout the Clone Wars series, even when Ahsoka was around. I felt like he was a little bit extra in this, though. Yeah. Okay. For me, at least. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm referring back to an episode where I think it was one of the first episodes that Ahsoka and Anakin are kind of on a mission together. And he kind of threatens. I can't remember which episode it was. They were in a ship. And Anakin is threatening somebody for information. And Ahsoka's like, uh, what you doing, homeboy? That's the Slaves of Zygeria. Oh, okay, perfect. Yeah, yeah okay. that's the Slaves of Zygeria arc. Yeah, okay. Where he's reminded of being a slave. Because yeah. that's, a slave, that's a slaver he's dealing with in there. Yeah. I, I associated it more with the anger that is a common theme throughout Anakin's character. But I see where Ahsoka could have definitely played a part in that. I didn't necessarily correlate Ahsoka until Obi-Wan talked about her later on in this arc. Okay. That is all. Roger, roger. Roger, roger. So, in spite of that, Anakin's methods weren't ineffective, necessarily. They discovered that the Toydarian was paid off by a droid with red eyes, and he was paid off to leave the building open a couple days ago. The red eyes piece was a big clue to Kenobi that it may have been a Magna Guard, which means somehow the Separatists are involved in some way. Magna Guards, as we know, are basically Grievous's henchmen. They also see some slime on the floor, which not really that significant, but the that tells us that the Amari, the tribal people of Utapau, are also somehow involved. So, in closing that, Obi-Wan is suspected that Grievous and the Separatists are involved and may be allied with the primitive Amani natives on Utapau in some way. Still have no idea why or how, but this is a troubling mystery to say the least. How dare they? <laughs> tisk tisk. Shame, shame. I don't know how to say their name. Amani? Amani. There we go. It's Armani without the R. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I've, I tried to give them a, a crazy nickname. All I came up with, Cobra Heads. Cobra Heads? They look like Cobras. Okay. After that investigation, they head back to the heart of the Pow City and speak with the governor, who suspiciously asked them to beep up on out of there and cut their investigation short. And it should come as no surprise to us that, of course, Anakin and Obi-Wan don't. They refuse. They stay and they continue their investigations. They're breaking the law. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. How dare they? So they head to the lower levels of Pow City to meet with a tribe of the Amani. 
where they learn that some Amani outcast was seen with two droids and were last seen in one of the caves that is down there. So they head on over to the cave and and inside of the cave, they find two Magna Guards in there. So at this point, their suspicions are confirmed and they do their best to sneak up on them. But they fail. They'd fail. <laughs> They're rudely interrupted by a Nos monster. And that tips off the Magna Guards and the Magna Guards fly on out of there on their little doohickeys. I can't remember the name of them. But they're doohickey craft. Yeah. They're single speeders. Single speeders? <laughs> yeah. Not couple speeders. Just single. Like a bike for two, but a bike for one? Yeah. Okay. Like a unicycle. They're on their unicycles. <laughs> Magna cards going away like... Juggling and everything. So, after they defeat the Nos monster, they head off and they give chase to the Magna Guards. On their unicycles. On their unicycles. Because they're a bunch of clowns with red eyes. They kind of look like clowns. Do they, though? In this, like, not well done, not finished animation, they kind of look like clowns. Okay. With their spinny sticks. Okay. Those are their balance sticks, so they can do the trapeze. (laughs) (laughs) See, they're clowns. They do trapeze. They should have gone into the Young Jedi arc. Yeah. Man, they missed their opportunity. They did, though. So, eventually they catch up to them and knock them off, and then they have a face-off on foot. They have a face-off on (laughs) foot. One foot, singular foot. One foot, two foot, blue fish, green fish. No! (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. Basically, they're not on speeders or anything anymore. They're on the ground. It just took me a second. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) I was a little confused. (sighs) So there's a line in this sequence that I absolutely loved. Just quintessential Anakin and Obi-Wan right here. Obi-Wan is yelling out to Anakin, you know, we we still need to see them functioning. So that they can eventually download the data and figure out what this big plot is or figure out who else is involved. To which Anakin replies, like, we only need one. Make it yours. <laughs> Just being catty about it. Oh, yeah. Which, Typical Anakin. Which I love that. But this next part was just like the sweetest icing on the cake. Like, in spite of that little back and forth that they just had, Anakin's, you know, he's trying to not completely destroy it. Is he, though? He is. He's holding back. He's holding back because at one point the electrostaff, like, grazes him. And he's like, all right, enough is enough. I'm done going easy on this guy. And he ended up force pushing it into what I think is a giant high-speed windmill and completely destroys it. And he calls out to Obi-Wan, oops, I broke it. (laughs) And that's how that entire fight was punctuated between Anakin and his respective Magna Guard, which I just thought that was great. Like, classic. Classic Anakin. Oh, yeah. And of course, like, Obi-Wan's getting his butt kicked, like he always does. He's, like, a really great fighter. But for some reason, he always turns the wrong way at the wrong time, and then he gets hit. Far too many times. We see this throughout the entire Clone Wars series. We see it in episode one, two, and three. He just, he has a tendency of taking a hit every once in a while, which I thought was really funny because he got his butt kicked again. (laughs) In a way, yes. And Anakin comes in 
and pens the droid down and they were able to download the information that they needed just before the droid, which I don't think I've ever heard a Magna Guard talk before this. No, I have not. The Magna Guard exclaimed like, self-destruct or whatever. You know, he's going to overload his capacitors so they can't take him alive. Like, that was his, you'll never take me alive moment. Yeah. So they were able to extract that information and Anakin reveals a hollow image with yet another player in the game, the Sugi. Oh, the Scorpion hybrid. Yes. Scorpion, get over here! Yeah, yeah. The Scorpion hybrid. So the Sugi are known arms dealers. And in addition to the Magna Guards and the Sugi, there's also an Amani who is later identified as one of the Plains Amani. So at this point, we know that there are Amani that live basically beneath Pow City or in the lower levels of Pow City, and there are money that live out in the plains. Yeah. Where the buffalo roam. You got the cobra people and the scorpion hybrids cohabitating. Cobra Kai. (laughs) Sweep the leg! Yes. So, once again, Obi-Wan and his detective abilities deduces that Grievous has brokered an arms deal with the Sugi and using the Amani as security in the, the transaction. And that's how Jedi Master Tuan met her fate. She was investigating it. She got too close. The Magna Guards and the Amani found out. They took her out. Pew, pew. Seizure. Dead. Dead. That's what happened. So the episode closes with Master Tuan's funeral and basically the council giving Obi-Wan and Anakin the green light to continue her investigation. Which is good. I just kind of feel bad for Grievous sometimes because, like, what if he wasn't actually involved and was just, you know, minding his own business for once? Obviously, he's involved. But I'm just saying, like, Obi-Wan blames Grievous on for everything. Everything. It's always Grievous's fault in Obi-Wan's eyes. Poor you, guy. He might just need a spa day. You know, maybe what was really happening was that... Grievous was planning a big party, like a big festival type party thing. And the only way he could acquire enough fireworks was to deal with some less than less than respectable characters, you know. And the Sugi, as we all know, have a lot of fireworks, too. Yeah. What? Like what? Poor Grievous. He just has a really bad upper respiratory infection. COVID-19. But everyone thinks he has COVID. It's really just an upper respiratory infection. It's actually an upper respiratory infection. Stop coming at people with upper respiratory infections. They don't have COVID. I don't know. I'm just going crazy now. My coffee's kicking in. Thank God. <laughs> Robot Spider-Man, he just wants he just wants a spa day too. Could you imagine Grievous in a spa? <laughs> He probably needs to be in a spa. Like cucumbers over his eyes. That would be so good for him. I think he just like, he really needs that recharge. He does. He's always so tense and angry. Like he's... (sighs) Maybe an albuterol inhaler. (laughs) He might need one of those too. (laughs) That's what he sounds like. An albuterol inhaler and a Z-pack. We'll get him fixed. We'll get him fixed right up. Yeah. You know, I feel the same about Maul sometimes. We blame Maul for everything. and He just wants to be a ruler of people. He just wants to be a boss. Everybody wants to be their own boss in some way, I feel like. Everybody wants to be a cat. Pirate cat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got Dooku. I mean, I feel bad for Dooku, too. 
Everyone's just assuming he's like a Deku guy from Legends of Zelda. He's his own person. His own person. It's Dooku, not Deku. No feelings for Sidious. No one gives two craps about him. I don't feel bad for him at all. No sympathy. Let's move on to the next episode, shall we? Great idea, Liv. (laughs) So the next episode is In Search of the Crystal. The journey is often more important than the destination. (laughs) Do you roll your eyes as much as I did with this one? Yeah, because in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, crap. What's this going to be about? All they did was walk. They just walked the whole time. So Anakin and Obi-Wan head off to the plains of Utapau, where they happen upon a village. Upon approaching, they are attacked by these tribal Amani. And so while the Amani are primitive people using spears and rocks primarily as weapons, the Amani of this village are also somehow equipped with precision laser darts, the very same that killed Tuon. So they know they're on the right track. Coincidence? I think not. Bonk, bonk, bonk. So, of course, our Jedi heroes prevail in this little standoff and the Amani retreat. And this leaves Anakin and Obi-Wan to investigate the village. So the presence of the precision laser darts confirms that this is the tribe that's in league with the Sugi and the Separatists. So this is where I had issues and I feel like animation would have done a great service to this piece. Like, Obi-Wan being a master tracker now with the footprints and being able to identify who the leader of the tribe is. Like, oh, that's a that's a tribal leader footprint right there if I've ever seen one. Like, how you know that? Like, he's like, oh, it's deeper. Maybe there's a heavyset Amani in there that's not the tribal leader. You don't know. I mean, he's Obi-Wan. He knows everything, apparently. <sighs> so obviously th- those tracks are of the leader and he deduces as the world's greatest detective that it's going to lead them to the Sugi encampment. There's a brief moment in here where Anakin kind of falls into an old pattern. The trail eventually seems to run cold and Anakin is in the middle of suggesting that they contact Ahsoka for help. And his thoughts trail off shortly after he says her name, basically remembering that she's gone. And with a very brotherly compassion, Obi-Wan reaches out emotionally to Anakin and asks him if he wants to talk about it. But Anakin, of course, snaps back and says, no, it's fine. There's nothing to talk about. And it's at this point where they make camp for the night. And at camp that night, they, (laughs) this one time, at Utapau camp. (laughs) (laughs) And noticing that Anakin is still very troubled by what happened earlier, his little slip, Obi-Wan prompts Anakin once more. And in a moment of remarkable vulnerability from Anakin, he admits that he misses Ahsoka and ultimately reveals his disappointment for Ahsoka and resentment towards the council, how they're basically the reason that she left. Like they turned their back on her and she had no choice but to leave. Obi-Wan concedes that yes, mistakes were made, but it also gives us some insight into what his thoughts and his feelings are on Ahsoka's departure. And I really like this next piece here. Ahsoka let her emotions guide her actions, which isn't the Jedi way. And for me, this really added a lot of color to Obi-Wan's initial reaction to Ahsoka and the tension between them in the first episode of the Siege of Mandalore in Mm -hmm. season seven. I thought it was really cool that we were able to have a connection to 
what we're currently seeing in Clone Wars. And there's another moment in the sequence that, while the foreshadowing is a little bit on the nose, it was still a pretty cool moment. Anakin feels responsible for Ahsoka's decision. Anakin relates his relationship with Ahsoka to Obi-Wan's relationship to Anakin. Anakin asks Obi-Wan, how well would you sleep knowing that I failed you? Obi-Wan says, not very well, I imagine. Luckily, that isn't true and never will be. So the foreshadowing is a bit heavy handed here, but I still thought it was a cool moment that I wanted to call out. Yeah, I thought like that whole interaction and kind of bringing Ahsoka back into it was really nice because it gave us this light of how does Anakin feel? Because before I watched Crystal Crisis, there was no definite emotion coming from Anakin that I I saw after that season. Except for the end of that episode when you can tell he's pretty distraught. Right. But after that, we didn't really have an opportunity to see and explore his emotions. Yeah. I Yeah. And so this was a really cool moment to kind of shine light on how Anakin was actually doing and how Anakin was feeling and kind of that comparison that he was trying to make with his relationship with Obi-Wan that he was trying to develop with Ahsoka. But I think I really had to side more on Obi-Wan's comments. Like you were just pointing out, like she let her emotions run wild and she let her emotions dictate like how she reacted and what she did. And he was like, and Basically, without, you know, saying it, I I had to do what the council was doing because that's the emotionless choice here. And that's kind of the emotionless response and responsibility that I have being on the council. And I really appreciated that from Obi-Wan because after watching the decision throughout that entire arc that Ahsoka then left, I did not really appreciate what the council did. I thought what they did was wrong. I thought they were wrong throughout the whole time. And then this episode kind of reminded me, oh yeah, they have to think without emotion. They have to take their emotions aside. They love Ahsoka. They want what's best for Ahsoka, but they have to treat everyone without emotions. They have to treat every situation without emotions because that's the Jedi way. Yes. I agree with that, but not completely because they did let the politics of it all, the relationship with the Senate, with Palpatine, they let that take precedence over. Oh, yeah. That part still mad about. Yeah. No, 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 no. Not okay. Not cool. But I see like if that was removed, I I see the direction that maybe the Jedi Council would have potentially have taken without the influence of the Senate and, and the senator and. Yeah. Palpatine. Which, again, hats off to Palpatine for orchestrating this whole thing. That's why I have no sympathy. Like, he's isolating Anakin really slowly. And I know we haven't really talked about the Ahsoka arc, but, like, this is evidence that this has had that impact on him the way the Emperor wants it to. Oh, yeah. He wants to continue to drive that wedge between him and the Council, make Anakin feel alone, and, like, Palpatine is his only friend Oh, yeah. It's beautiful. Palpatine is the most patient man. I mean, going off script a little bit here, he goes nine movies, three of which super patient to isolate Anakin. The next three to kill, you know, the Skywalker line or have them join. Then the next three presumed dead and then shows up. 
He is the most patient character in the whole Star Wars, like, saga, life. I will give him that much. Patience is definitely a virtue of his. I think that really speaks to the Sith as a whole, though, because they had to redefine their strategy after the, and I'm going to dive into Legends a little bit here, so forgive me, but they had to sort of redefine their strategy after Bane with the rule of two, go underground, adapt to this new way, and play the long game with them. And it wasn't until Tenebris and Plagueis came around that they really started to set that plan in motion thousands of years in the making. Mm -hmm. Like setting themselves up in the galaxy to have that kind of influence, that slow burn, that cancer to eat apart the Jedi Order from the inside. Which... So good. Yeah. And then you have Kylo Ren who just ruins it all. He is the most impatient human being I've ever experienced in Star Wars. (laughs) He gets pretty petulant in the sequel trilogy. (laughs) He has temper tantrums. Not a quality of patience. (laughs) Force rage. Force rage. So anyway, a little bit of a tangent, but I thought that was a good conversation. Yeah, I thought so too. Thanks, babe. Thanks, babe. So that's where we end that evening. And they awake... To the Suji surrounded what? Just the fact, Anakin's like, I'll take first watch. Both wake up. Oops, fell asleep. Yeah, and played it off like the Sugi surrounding them in the morning was all part of his plan. Typical Anakin. So their lightsabers are confiscated and they're escorted to the Sugi base of operations. As they're walking, I love this, by the way. And as they're walking, the Sugi are quizzically inspecting the lightsabers. And in this morbidly funny moment, Anakin Force activates his lightsaber while one of the Sugi is studying the blade emitter, looking directly into it, kills him instantly. It was hilarious. I loved that. I had a different opinion about that. Go on. I liked it. Don't get me wrong. Like, I thought it was really funny. But I also was like, it was a little, a little dark. Uh, that was a, That was a little much from Anakin, like. That could have gone so bad so quickly, but it didn't. Like, oh, he's looking at my lightsaber. Let me turn it on and kill him. That's almost as bad as when he was holding the lightsabers up to the Watto character. It was taking it to that next level of, I'm going to take advantage of the situation and end the life. Like, it had this dark, maniacal feel to me personally that I was like, ooh, we're still sitting in that anger from the conversation the night before. A little bit, yeah. But I think this is a little different because they are currently captives. Oh, yeah. I I agree. But if he could force turn it on, why didn't he just force grab it and then free themselves? Because they want to be led back to the encampment. I mean, yeah. But we have Detective Obi-Wan who could have done it himself. True. Master Tracker over here. Like, tell me which footprint is the leader. Yeah. So... After that moment, they're questioned by what I think is a Sugi commander. And they tell the Sugi commander that they're prospective buyers. They're wanting to purchase the same weapon as General Grievous. So the commander stores the two lightsabers on his belt. And they continue to be led back to the Sugi encampment, where they're greeted by their leader named Indente. Which, incidentally, is how I like to cook my pasta. Wow. Okay. Good one, babe. (laughs) Got pasta man. 
Pasta Man. That is his name now. Little Noki. Noki, technically, is not pasta. It's potatoes. Whatever. I love Noki. I think it's so good. Okay, he's a little, he's a little like ziti. Ziti works. Like quarter piece of ziti. Little dude. Yeah. Um. He's a mini bow tie. A little mini bow tie pasta. <laughs> um. So in Dente, let's it slip that the weapon is a crystal of some kind, and the Jedi request to actually see it. So at this point, we're being led to where the crystal is. And there's a funny callback to A New Hope in here where they're bantering back and forth, they meaning Obi-Wan and Anakin, about the mountains and the grass of the plains of Utapau. The thrills never stop here on Utapau, Anakin says, <laughs> and makes a comment about how there's another mound, like, oh, look, more grass. And Obi-Wan says, that's no mound, that's a spaceship. Which I thought was a really funny callback to A New Hope. Yeah. You know, that's no moon. It's a space station. Yeah. Why am I saying like that? Yeah. It's a space station. Needless to say, this entire episode was all about walking. Which was the journey that was more important than their destination. Which really isn't true because the destination had a crystal of some sort that they needed. They had to walk, though. I'm just making walking jokes because we talk about how... Jedi like to park their ships hundreds of miles away. They parked their pterodactyls like right on top of the village, but one of them got killed and the other got run away. I'm just making a joke. Continue. So once they're back at the spaceship, they're led to a holding cell where they decide that they've grown tired of being a captive of this Sugi named Indente. So they make an escape, incapacitating the Sugi guards while on the run from blaster fire, they make their way up into the ventilation ducts. And in a very self-aware moment, Obi-Wan makes a comment about how they are always in the ventilation ducts. They always end up there in some way. He's not exactly wrong. No, because when I first saw it, the, the first time I saw it, I was like, why do they always end up in the ventilation ducts? And then Obi-Wan said it. I was like, thank you. Thank you for agreeing with me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You are my only hope right now. Boom. Funny joke. <laughs> Good one, babe. Thanks. I like it when shows are self-aware like that. Oh, yeah. So after snaking their way through the ventilation ducts, they find themselves in the armory. And like a kid in the candy store, Anakin goes berserk in there. He just seems so happy to just be surrounded by all these weapons. He's checking them all out. But eventually he lands on a pair of pistols that he's going to dual wield, which... Pretty cool. He then uses these to dispatch a number of Sugi grunts, which was pretty cool to see the proficiency at which Anakin uses these uncivilized weapons, as Obi-Wan calls them. But the part that I love most about this sequence is when the Sugi commander comes back in. He's got the lightsabers on his belt. Anakin has his back turned to him. He activates the lightsabers. They do like a little whirlwind around the Sugi commander and return to their rifle places in Obi-Wan and Anakin's hands. And I thought that was just beautiful. Like, there are pieces of this arc that I would have loved to see a refined animation of. This is one of them. I think that would have been really fun to see. I would have liked to see the whole thing with refined animation. But yes, I agree with you. This would have been a cool moment. I would have liked to see the whole thing, though. I agree. Gaping necks was so funny. 
the gaping necks arc. I mean, their mouths may not have opened, but their necks definitely were open, so... So in Dente, the Sugi leader shows up, and they give chase to him, and they chase him through a hangar. Long story short, he makes it away. But in that hangar, they finally happen upon the crystal, and they discover that it's a massive kyber crystal. And this is akin to what we eventually see in Rebels, actually. So it was kind of cool to see like what that might have looked like on the story reels of Rebels as well. Obviously, this crystal would be devastating in the wrong hands. And we end with the plan now being to escape Utapau on the ship that they're on. Could you imagine the lightsaber that crystal would have made? Like the BFG come up in there with his own lightsaber? Ooh, yeah. 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 They literally could have made a lightsaber that came out of the Death Star. They could have just been this like big ball with the lightsaber sticking out from... Vroom, destroying planets, cutting them in half. That would be really cool. Oh. That's where my brain went. Just make a big lightsaber out of the Death Star. And then you got the steering wheel and you turn it to the left ever so slightly. And you cut one planet in half. Then you turn it to the right and you cut another one in half. You get it big enough. You have coming up both sides. You can do two. You can destroy two planets at once. I'm just making funnies. Like, could you imagine the Death Star having a lightsaber coming out of it? It'd be so cool. It would be. Yeah. Next up, we have the episode Crystal Crisis. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we open up this one with Anakin Obi-Wan trying to escape on this ship. However, however, the Sugi before they left had sabotaged the engines. And now they got to figure out a way to get the crystal back to a port of some kind so that they can escape the planet. They end up using a repulsor lift pulled by a wild beast of burden that they acquire. It's a little bit of a a struggle to find one, but they get there. In a tense, hollow meeting with Dooku, Indente changes the plan and suggests that they meet at the port instead of the plains, alluding to the fact that he has a friend there in Pow City, also attempting to hide the fact that the Jedi are currently in possession of the crystal. Now, in transit to Pow City, the Suji attack Anakin and Obi-Wan. However, as always, the Jedi prevail and acquire one of their speeders. Now they no longer have to deal with the Beast of Burden. They have a speeder to pull them along the rest of the way. Yay, speeders. We cut back to Pow City, where Indente's friend is actually the governor of Pow City, who is speaking with Grievous. And after a brief exchange of words, Grievous deploys his Magna Guards to go find Indente. None too pleased that he's not there to meet, th- meet him with the crystal. Anakin and Obi-Wan are heading back to Pow City, or some type of spaceport. Indente and his grunts are in pursuit, and in this scourge, errant Suji campfire hits the crystal, which is refracted back against the Suji, and just completely decimates them. And giving us a really good example of the kind of power that this crystal has, which is pretty brutal. It was cool to see, even in, in story real form. Yes. During this, Indente's friend, the governor, calls him up, says, Hey, Grievous looking for you. Indente heads back to Pow City in a hurry. Mm-hmm. And when Indente gets back to Pow City, he's meeting with Grievous. And, and obviously, he's still trying to hide the fact that he doesn't actually have the crystal right now. But the Magna Guards that Grievous had dispatched on the Jedi had already reported in and said, Hey, Grievous, dude's a liar. Jedi have the crystal. So, in a brutal, brutal way, 
Grievous decapitates Indente. No more Indente. The pasta is overcooked. Ugh, that's the worst. So after he deals with Indente, Grievous goes and joins the chase. Per usual. And during the chase, the Magna Cards end up damaging the Repulsor lift a little bit. But ultimately, the Magna Cards and Grievous are both taken out by Varactyl Lizards, which we actually see, again, in Revenge of the Sith. Mm -hmm. The ones that Kenobi makes friends with and rides throughout Utapau. Yeah. Utapau. Because it's damaged, it screeches to a halt in the spaceport. And then they're surrounded by the governor and his cronies. The Jedi are sitting there saying, hey, we need to get this out of here. And all of a sudden, battle droids show up. And then they discover governor and separatists are in league with one another too. Now that's when the crystal is loaded onto a transport ship using a much more effective means of transporting this crystal using little sticky hover thingies. And they fly off to Grievous's ship. Now the Jedi, of course, escape once again. The evil clutches of the Separatists and the Utapauians cannot hold them. And they commandeer a freighter and give chase to the transport ship. It's at this point where Grievous shows back up. None too pleased that the Jedi have escaped again. And then he just kills the governor because he's had a bad day. Yeah, his spa day was interrupted. It was quite inconvenient. And that brings us to the last episode of this arc, The Big Bang. If at first you don't succeed... Destroy it. Sounds about right. A little on the nose. Yeah. So while in pursuit of this transport, Obi-Wan checks in with the council, informing them that what the weapon is is actually a massive crystal. And in that exchange, Yoda calls Obi-Wan Cavalier. And we have this moment after they hang up where Obi-Wan kind of loses his cool for a moment, which I thought was really fun to see, where Yoda calls him Cavalier, hangs up the phone, Obi-Wan turns to Anakin and says something to the effect of, like, you're Cavalier all the time, and no one gives you grief for it. <laughs> I just thought that was a really funny human moment for Obi-Wan, who is usually high and mighty. Yes. So while on their way to Grievous' ship, fighters are now attacking Obi-Wan and Anakin's freighter. And the fighters end up kind of damaging the ship a little bit. They try the old number five special, because why not? You know the number five special, live. Classic. Yeah, Kung Pao Chicken. So they try the Kung Pao Chicken, where they inject themselves out via the escape pods. The Kung. They target their autopilot to run into their hyperdrive. The Pao. And their respective escape pods go into different hangars because Anakin's wasn't working very well. The Chicken. Well done. Thanks. Number five special, Kung Pao Chicken. Their pods are in different hangars, and Obi-Wan is eventually captured. Anakin is not, though. He infiltrates the command center on the ship and figures out where the crystal is and where Obi-Wan is being held. Of course. Classic. I mean, of course Obi-Wan would go into the hangar with all the droids. He followed the crystal. He followed the crystal, and of course Anakin would end up away from him. In the hangar with one droid. Who gets scared. He says, boo. Ah, my knees! So we cut to Dooku and Grievous on the holophone with one another. <laughs> holophone. Holla! Holla! And Dooku instructs Grievous to bring the crystal back to his home planet of Sereno, where he'll meet up with him. Which is obviously going to take some time because their hyperdrive is down. Pow. Yeah, the pow. 
the power of the number five special. Yeah. But in the meantime, they're going to kill Obi-Wan. They're going to take him off to the execution chamber, but not before Anakin liberates him. <laughs> As usual. As usual, Anakin saves Obi-Wan. At this point, they head off to the vault where the crystal is being held, but they also end up getting locked in with it. Smooth move there. And because they're in the vault, obviously the droids can't find them. In a report to Grievous, one of the droids even says, like, we even looked in the ventilation ducts. Like, this is this is another very self-aware moment yeah. where it's like, we know they're always in the ventilation ducts. Yeah. And Grievous deduces that they are in the vault instead and sends a squad after them. The squad opens up the doors and Anakin and Obi-Wan use the crystal to ram through the first squad, taking them out. One of the things that I really loved about this particular scene right before the droids came was Anakin was like, we need a plan. Like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And it was this like slight nod to Qui-Gon Jinn where Obi-Wan was like, we're just going to, we're going to wait for the doors to open. We're literally going to wait for them to come to us. Let's just wait. That's my plan. We're just going to wait. Just like Qui-Gon Jinn uh, during the, the battle between Maul literally sat down and just patiently waited for the, the doors to kind of open so he could start fighting again. I thought that was a really cool, like, oh, Qui-Gon Jinn moment. Like, I saw a little bit of his master in that decision. That's really cool. Thank you. That was probably my most enlightening moment of the entire arc. Back to jokes. Enforce lightning. <laughs> oh, like, uh, yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> took me a second. So as they're making off with the crystal, they're trying to get to the hangar bay. They come under a lot of blaster fire in this. And obviously you're going to have blaster fire that hits the crystal. Crystal fire fires back. Yes, it does. And they kind of use that method over and over and over again. And at one point you have a spire droid come up and fire its cannon against it. And it blows a hole in the side of the ship with the energy that it refracted off, which I thought was awesome. And they keep on using that method to make their way all the way back to the hangar. Once in the hangar, they come under heavy fire and the sticky doohickeys fall off of the crystal and that basically permanently grounds it. Now they have to change out their plan again. Obi-Wan suggested they just blow it up and the ship along with it. While Anakin goes off to get the escape shuttle, Obi-Wan makes his way to the assault tanks in the hangar and begins firing on the crystal, hopping into each tank along the way and setting the target coordinates to the center of the crystal where the crystal becomes increasingly more unstable and begins destroying Grievous's ship from within. During this process, Anakin and Obi-Wan flee, and the crystal's devastating explosion ends up not only taking out the ship, but also Grievous's entire fleet above Utapau. So a very cool moment illustrating the power of this crystal. I thought it was dope. That's really it. Like I thought like the idea of destroying it like obviously it would have taken a lot of time for them to force lift it because it took a lot of effort and a lot of time for them to bring it down in a couple of episodes before and they don't they don't have that kind of time because they're under they're under fire like Mm -hmm. they're getting shot at they can't really like deflect force lift bring it to their ship and be like i got this doesn't work that way you know if they were wizards be a different story you know one of them could when Gaudi Leviosa lifted up, the other could be deflecting to the ship, but you know, it's fine. This would be one heck of a when Gaudi and Leviosa. Oh yeah. It would be like the Trolls Club in uh Sorcerer's Stone. Ah. Yeah. I just thought it was cool. 
They blew it up. Everything blew up. Because at the end of the day, the priority for this is for this weapon, this crystal, to not end up in the Separatists and the Sith hands. Yeah. And essentially, they did that on all ends because had they brought it back to the Council, it would have been even closer to the Sith. Not to their knowledge, but to our knowledge as onlookers, like, that probably would have been more dangerous than helpful. It would have complicated things, I feel like. I feel like it would have made things a little more complicated because you don't know where that thing's going to get stored. It could be stored at the Jedi Temple. Yeah. As a Jedi-related artifact. Yeah, then Anakin could have used it against the younglings that way, opposed to his own lightsaber. He could have used it to blow up Coruscant. Coruscant. He just could have done a lot of bad things. Thank goodness that didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) He still did a lot of bad things. So in this final scene, Anakin and Obi-Wan are in the council chamber debriefing with the council members. And when asked about the crystal, Yoda reveals he's familiar with it from the stories of old, when the Jedi and Sith fought for control of the galaxy, and destructive weapons were created, like massively destructive weapons were created, and at the heart of each and every one of them was one of these massive kyber crystals. Anakin comes back skeptically with... These are children's books. These are fairy tales. And Yoda has this line that I love. In legends, we often find great truth, Skywalker. And then he ends with an ominous warning that the Sith Lord will seek another kyber crystal if he has the chance. Now, the reason I love that line so much is taking a look at when this episode would have been released. Fall of 2014, well after when Disney bought Lucasfilm. And after that 2012 sale to Disney, they made the call to say anything published after 2014 would now be considered new canon. And anything published before 2014 would be considered legends. And these legends are stories that could have happened, but aren't necessarily part of Star Wars history per se. These stories are simply considered what the name would indicate, legends. And when that happened, that caused a great deal of controversy within the Star Wars community. And when Yoda says, in Legends, we often find great truths, I feel like it's almost like Dave Filoni is speaking to Star Wars fandom right there. Like, the message that I got, whether it's intentional or not, this is the one that I got, was that he's giving some validation to the stories that we read in Legends. Like, there are nuggets within there that give us more color and add to our experience of Star Wars and to encourage us to not write off these publications before 2014 just because they're no longer considered canon. Mm -hmm. And I loved that. I thought that was a really, really cool thing in there. That could have been completely unintentional, but that was the message that I got from it. I didn't think about it that way until just now, so that's really cool. Pretty dope. Pretty dope. So that, ladies and gentlemen, has been Crystal Crisis. It was a really cool arc. I really liked it. Overall, I think it was a really nice kind of addition to the series that I kind of wish they had done because I feel like there was a lot of connections made and a lot of things that tie to this particular arc that if you haven't seen it or if you haven't had the opportunity to like watch the arc... They're kind of left like open doors that you can't necessarily walk through with knowledge. You know what I mean? It's like walking through a door not knowing what's on the other side. Watching this one gave me that opportunity to walk through certain doors and certain plots with a little bit more knowledge. It, it is really cool because yeah. 
like I said before, this comes from the the Clone Wars Legacy Collection, where we have Son of Dathomir and Dark Disciple. We, and we have those publications that we can go back and actually read and experience there. But these were so close to being done. Yeah. I'm glad that these still exist in the internet world for us to experience and to be able to study and know about because, again, still considered canon. Yeah. Even though we never got these officially released, refined episodes from the Clone Wars. But I still think there's a lot of context and color to these episodes that is valuable to the overall Clone Wars and Star Wars experience. Yeah. So definitely would encourage you to go out and check them out. Yeah. And again, they're on YouTube and links will be in our description because... We want everyone to experience the same. And if you have issues with the animation, just do what I do. Treat it like a podcast. <laughs> just listen to it. it. It works just as well. Like, I didn't necessarily have to visually see everything to absolutely understand everything. There are some parts I was like, I want to see what this crystal looks like. Look like a crystal. You ready to wrap this thing up? Yeah. So this has been another thrilling exploration into a galaxy far, far away with pizza and parsecs. I'm Dave. I'm Liv. And you can check out our show on bit.ly backslash pizza and parsecs pod or on your favorite podcasting platform. If you like what you hear and want to help us out, head on over to iTunes and leave us a rate and review. We're still a fairly new podcast and it really just helps get the word out. And don't forget, you can always follow us on our socials at Pizza and Parsecs. Give us a holler. We love it when internet friends talk to us because we don't have many others. Holla. We'll always holler back. Holla back, girl. Thanks a lot, guys, and may the force be with you. Always. Mini me. Mini me. That's Jurassic Park. There you go.